worship together by taking our Bibles and turning to Genesis chapter 16. If you're a guest today and you don't have a copy of God's Word, feel free to use the blue Bible in the pew pocket in front of you, and you'll find our text on page 11. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, feel free to take that with you. We'd be glad for you to have that to look at this week. Genesis chapter 16, I'll read the text in its entirety to begin our study today. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roai. It lies between Kadesh and Beret. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. On January the 6th, 2002, a news story broke that would rock the religious world. 
The special investigative journalism team, who had labeled themselves Spotlight, had released a story for the Boston Globe that would actually change the course of America's view on religion. In particular, the piece was so effective that its headline, when I read it for you, has actually lost some of its shock value. The opening line of the Sunday paper read, Church allowed abuse by priests for years. Church allowed abuse by priests for years. Here we are over 15 years later, and we're like, haven't we heard that before? Uh, We sure have. That story, as a snowball, would turn into an avalanche. I mean, in the Boston area alone, there would be 600 more stories at the Globe reporting similar cases. 249 priests would be accused, and the victims total conservatively around 1,000, and that's just in the Boston area. But here's the crazy thing. It set off a chain of events that would go through the entire world. Soon as Boston broke its peace, there would then be other papers around the world that would begin to have the courage to disclose such abuses of power as well, totaling over 200 cities on this planet in which major sex abuse allegations were being investigated. Friends, that's a lot of people who were hurt by the hand that was supposed to help them. Untold millions have suffered at such hands. And friends, I say this sensitively. I realize we're on a tough topic. But it's not limited to the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, the Houston Chronicle just released a piece back in February implicating the Southern Baptist Convention. Not nearly to the degree of the Roman Catholic Church, but implicated nonetheless. And I don't care what the name is on the church sign, Baptist, Bible Church, non-denominational, we all know that abuse of power is a possibility wherever power is had. In fact, it's not just churches, clearly. It's anywhere where there's power, there can also be the abuse of such power. In homes, at schools, on sports teams. Wherever there is power, there is potential for abuse. It can be big or small. It can be occasional or frequent. It can be physical, emotional, or sexual. But it happens. It happens regularly. And to be fair, none of us have escaped this ugly grasp. Now, this is hard because some of you have suffered more than others. But let's be clear, all at some point or another have suffered. 
the hand that helped, or was supposed to help, ended up causing hurt. And it's a bad place to be. It's a horrible place to be because when the authority, when the one in power was supposed to be the one to protect you, where do you turn? There's an inevitable loneliness that, that comes to those who have been hurt in some way, in some fashion, by those who were supposed to help them. It causes loneliness, a helplessness. It's like we're, we're stranded on the social ocean, surrounded by water with nothing to drink. And so the question is, because it happens, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we respond? And how do we help? I think we can be relieved that Genesis, this book of origins, even speaks to this as well. It is spoken to the origin of good. We saw it in Genesis 1 and 2. It speaks to the origin of evil. We saw that in chapter 3. And we've seen what seems like countless iterations of this expression of evil from chapter 3 all the way here to chapter 16. But Genesis also speaks to not just the origin of good and not just the origin of evil, but it also speaks to the origin of a remedy. The, The origin of some type of solution for the problem that has dominated the world. And it, and it gives these windows of hope into this repair, this reconciliation, this healing, this help, this hope for some. Because you remember, you get to Genesis chapter 3, and there's this promise that goes out in the midst of all the pain and suffering that there will be one who would come from Eve's offspring who would be able to effect some type of restoration of blessing. So it's this one from the line of Eve. And we read a few more chapters and we see this one who will come from the line of Seth. And we read a few more chapters and we see this one who will come from the line of Noah. And then we see one who will come from the line of Shem. And then we see one who will come from ultimately the line of Abram. And you're reading through the first 11 chapters and you're thinking, wow, that must be nice. I wish I could be in that line. It's really cool that the whole world's going to be restored for a few people. At least that's what you think. Until Genesis chapter 12. And then everything changes. Because now that line that seemed like it was going to be restricted to this this narrow genealogy. It's like light that hits a prism and shatters everywhere. It will make its way to the entire world through the seed of Abram. Do you remember that? God tells Abram, I will not only bless you, I will not only bring healing to you, I will not only repair you, but I will repair you to such a degree that there will be healing and hope and blessing for the entire world through you, Abram. But we've got a major problem. Because even though Abram would be blessed for the good of the nations, you're reading through the first few chapters of Abram's life, and he is anything but... 
The first time we get to see him in action is when he goes to the promised land, there's a famine, there's a threat to that promise, he decides to take things into his own hands, and just a couple of months later, he ends up trafficking his wife to Pharaoh, and then brings plagues upon Pharaoh's house because of his relationship with Sarah. With Sarah. Way to go, Abram. Way to be a blessing to the nations. We see very little interaction of his relationship with outside nations, outside of him actually dominating some nations to recapture his nephew in chapter 14. But his next interaction with a foreigner comes here in chapter 16. And, and the whole story here is, is going to turn around this foreigner, this Egyptian and it's going to show us God's heart for the hurting. God's heart for the hurting. It's a story, one story with two halves. In, in verses 1 through 6, you, you will have noticed you're going to see Sarai and the foreigner. And, and then in verses 7 through 16, you're going to see Yahweh and the foreigner. You're going to see the difference between the way Abram's house handles the foreigner and the way that Yahweh himself intervenes to handle the foreigner, and it is a stunning contrast. The focus, though, is on Hagar. She is the common thread throughout this whole thing. She is the hurting, isolated outsider. So hear her story now. And let's all marvel together at Yahweh's heart for the hurting. Let's look at the first half of the story. Sarai's harm to the foreigner in verses 1 through 6. We've already read it, but look at verse 1 one more time. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. As is done in any good story here, we're introduced to a couple of the main characters. Uh, so far, everything's really been centered around Abram. Now, for the first time, the ladies take center stage. And we're introduced to two. The first is Sarai, Abram's wife. Pretty simple. But notice the insulting moniker, who had borne him no children. Abram is being blessed by God, and he is going to cause blessing for the entire world, but the whole plan hinges upon his capacity and her capacity to together produce a child, or at least so they think. And so this is a glaring Weakness. This woman at this point is being characterized not by who she is, but what she is not. And that is harmful. That hurts. It's hard for us to calculate like, the, the pain of those few lines in our own day. Because there is very little going on in the ancient Near East outside of producing family. This was the pinnacle of their existence. And for this woman to be told that she cannot produce children puts her in a desperate, desperate state. She is a woman who is frustrated. She is a woman who is known by lack. And then we meet this other woman, Hagar. It's interesting. She had a female Egyptian servant. If you know anything about the Orient, strike one, strike two, strike three. Socially speaking, this woman has no standing. A, she is a woman. 
And I'm not, sound, I'm not meaning to sound 21st century patriarchal. I'm just telling you how it was in that day. She's a woman. She is a servant. Translated, slave. And she's Egyptian. Anybody reading this on the plains of Moab or hearing it before they cross over into the promised land doesn't get warm fuzzies when they hear about Egyptians. This is a hated individual and despised. She is an outsider if there ever was one. And so now we're going to see how these two relate to one another. And I want to be clear about something, though, because anytime we address an issue as sensitive as slavery in the Old Testament text, you need a clear picture in your mind of the way things were viewed in that day. Our normal instinct is to think antebellum slavery in the South and the abuses that took place in that. What I want you to understand is that actually in this day and time, slavery was still slavery. It was bad. But it was less the diary of Frederick Douglass and more of Downton Abbey. Cora Crawley's lady's maid would be a good equivalent of what Hagar is here. She is someone who is locked in to serving another, but it is not by any means a demeaning status for her because she is going to be taken care of. It was somewhat of an honor to be in this particular position. So be careful not to impose your 21st century sensibilities upon the text. She does have some privileges here. She, she is in a good spot. But the question is more about Sarai. How will she do in the waiting place? Because she has no children. Or verse 2 will tell us. She, she speaks, she talks. And by the way, when you're looking for meaning in narrative text in the Old Testament, you typically find the meat of the story in the conversations, in the dialogue. So notice the words here. How will Sarai do? Well, Verses 2 and 3. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now, look, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Did you notice those opening lines? Sarai actually has a fantastic theology. She understands that anything and everything that happens, happens because God himself ordains it to happen. Even her childlessness. But it seems like there's a note of bitterness because she says, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Prevented here in the ESV is actually a very kind word. You look it up in a Hebrew lexicon and it's something like imprisoned or shut up. It's God has enclosed me. He has captured me into this desperate state, and she is determined for a jailbreak. God may have his plans for her womb, but she has other plans for offspring. And so she begins to introduce this ploy to circumvent the sovereign plan of God. She's done with the waiting. She's ready for a child. And so she takes matters into her own hands and Uh, Just to say that it's kind of hard not to blame her. I mean, in a culture in which childbearing was such a prominent theme, you need to understand that she would do anything to fix this. I mean, this would be like 
a kid in Indiana, like playing basketball and the son of a coach and the grandson of a coach and trying to get on his high school team and getting cut. Or maybe he gets on the team and all the family shows up and he only sits on the bench. She's been putting in the work, she's been putting in the effort, and all she's getting is the shame. Or I think maybe even another transcultural parallel would be that of the Asian student who has worked hard to get their grades up and to rocket their SAT scores, not even to make it into community college. It is a shame, it is an embarrassment. And she can't handle it. So she is going to get out of this, and what she says here is shocking. It's shocking to our sentiments. She tells Abram, go into my servant. I don't mean to sound crude here, but she, in our modern parlance, would be saying, have sex with my servant. She is not using the intimate term no. She is not implying some kind of relationship. She sees this as cold and contractual. You need to have a physical relationship with this woman so that we can get this thing done. And, and we need to speak to this for a moment because the sexual ethics of the Old Testament often offend, again, our, our modern sensibilities. We think, like, who in the world? What, what a horrible plan. Why would anyone ever do this? Well, there is no in vitro fertilization. There is no assistive reproductive technology. Uh, they would do anything to have children, and that's why, friends, polygamy was such a big deal in the Old Testament. Was it just that they were trying to like just live it up? They actually wanted more kids because for them that would be more honor. But it doesn't make it right. But it was very popular in that time. In fact, you could read the law of Hammurabi. And you would see that there are certain laws prescribing and protecting individuals who would take on such surrogacy. There's instances of it all the way from Babylon down to Egypt from the first to third millenniums B.C. You need to understand, as as crazy as this sounds to you, it doesn't sound that crazy to them. Are you hanging with me? In fact, the biblical patriarchs would do this a couple of times. Now, it doesn't make it right, but do you remember what happened with Jacob and Rachel? Rachel couldn't have children. What does she do? She gives her maid. Same thing happens in Genesis 38 with Onan and Tamar. And so I'm trying to get you into the sandals of of this this audience for a moment. So I want you to get the fact that they, their modern views would probably, of this particular act, would be something akin to our own views of assisted reproduction today when there's an outside party involved. I would think that the modern sentiment among people today, Christians and non-Christians alike, would be, well... If things get really tricky, it's kind of iffy if someone is helping someone else have a baby and they are physically involved but not the husband or wife. Whether that be the donation of seed or egg, or whether that be someone who is doing surrogacy. I mean, some of us naturally, and I think rightfully, start to get a little uncomfortable and squeamish in those types of settings, even though some people on the outside can justify it and say, well, it must be okay. Are you catching the ethos? It's not as atrocious as it seemed to them. But it is atrocious in the eyes of God. This is not God's plan. And the narrator will subtly make this exceedingly clear. It is one of those, just because everybody's doing it doesn't make it right. 
And here's the way that he does it. He, he, he does this, he, he lets us know that he doesn't approve of this action by portraying this as a replay of another infamous interaction between a husband and a wife. One that we all know very well. One that they would have known very well. He uses the same verbs. He uses the same structure. And I want to know if there's any guesses. Here's some clues. See if you can know what story he may be alluding to. Well, there's a woman who is convinced that she is not blessed by God to the max. Two, the woman takes initiative over her husband. Three, the man, quote, listens to the voice of, end quote, his wife. Four, the woman takes and gives to her husband exact Hebrew words. Five, the husband willingly partakes. Sound familiar? It's Genesis chapter 3 all over again. He has told us that this is forbidden fruit. Sarai, like Eve, plays God, circumventing his plan to get a better blessing. And I will say, friends, that any time we force the issue with God, things don't work well. There will be horrible fallout to this. Have any of you ever put together a piece of Ikea furniture before? I have. Living in California for several years forced me into an Ikea store more than I wanted to be. The Swedish furniture is known for its economy and its compactness. And it fits in small spaces. You look at it in the store and you're thinking, oh, this, is, this could be amazing. And then when you check out, you get to the end and everything's in a flat little box. <laughs> With instructions that don't have any words. So, the pictures are supposed to be that clear. Now, I have put together my share of Ikea. I've learned something. You should trust the instructions. I mean, if, just follow them carefully. If you have to grunt, you did something wrong. The men in the room may know what I'm talking about. If you're going, <laughs> you did not read the instructions. And I know what I've done in those moments. Immediately, I didn't follow the instructions, but I'm thinking like, this is the only way this thing's going to work. There, I can't believe, what idiots in Sweden produced this piece of trash? And then the thing looks all hobbledy, you know, you glue it in some way, you stick a hole through something that you didn't mean to, and it may stay up for a little while, but eventually the thing falls to pieces. You don't even take it to Goodwill, you just throw it straight in the dumpster. This is exactly what I think is going on in Abram and Sarai's mind. They have not carefully read the instructions. Something's not working the way that they intended for it to work, and they start grunting. I will make this work, and it causes irreparable damage, it seems. Now, at first, it looks like this thing's going to stand up. It looks like it's all going to hold together because you go ahead and read right on into verse 4 and notice what happens. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, though, it gets better. She looked with contempt on her mistress. So all is fine and good until somebody's feelings get hurt. And in this case, it's Sarai. It'd be easy to play up Hagar's involvement in this, like she must have been a really mean woman. But as I read the text, I'm kind of thinking such jealousy is inevitable. I mean, if Sarai couldn't get in the game and then all of a sudden 
Hagar comes along and starts scoring points, any wrong action towards Sarai is going to be viewed as an attack. If she can't get into college, and now she's got a full-ride scholarship into motherhood, anything that she does will be perceived as an attack on Sarai. Think about it. The inevitable pains that would come with pregnancy, the, the lethargy, the pain. And when she would complain, Sarah would ask her to do something, and she'll say, sorry, I can't, I've got a baby on the way. There is no way that she's coming out of this thing good. And this was all Sarai's fault to begin with. Sure, Hagar could have played it up in some way, in some fashion, but she wasn't the one that subjected herself to the sexual mistreatment of this couple. They used her as an object, and the worst thing they get from it is some hurt feelings. It's a horrific situation. Don't read it too quickly. But it continues... Because Sarai will have none of it. She is determined to fix it. The old playwright said it well. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So Sarai, she leans in. First she leans in on her husband. And and men in the room who are married, I just want to say, it should encourage you that the great patriarchs of the faith have marital squabbles as well. Hopefully, you're never debating over this particular issue. But I tried to do it in Scripture reading. Do you hear the tone in this thing? It's like it was recorded yesterday. I mean, like, it is so fresh. Notice what happens here. Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. (laughs) The the word wrong there is actually that word back in Genesis 6, kamas, right? Violence. May the violence, may the insensitivity, may the the, the selfishness that I'm having to endure from this woman, may it be your problem. I gave my servant to your embrace, notice that, the you, your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt, and then she pronounces judgment. She says, may Yahweh judge between me and you. Basically, she's so confident that she's in the right on this. She says, all right, I want Yahweh to come down and judge now, and it'll be between me and you, and I know the way he's going to judge. Don't arguments normally go this way? In the heat of emotion, you start saying things that don't make any sense. Always. Never. They ever come out in your arguments? Nobody's always doing anything, and no one's never doing anything. And yet, in the heat of the moment, that is what's going on. And Abram, uh, just the husband par excellence, just passively says, this is your problem. (laughs) She's your servant. She's in your hand. You deal with her as you please. But notice the insensitivity. Here's a guy that's supposed to be a blessing for the nations, and he's treating her like just a piece of property. If the piece of Ikea furniture doesn't work out, just throw it out. It's yours. You do what you want with it. It is your piece of property. And so, Sarai takes her rage from Abram and channels it to Hagar. And the text says it just so plainly. Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she fled with her, from her. Now, the world deal harshly, I think, is actually very kind. The, the, the same word here, translated deal harshly, is in the, the previous chapter. Go, you look at it. Chapter 15, verse 14. And 
I'll just I'll read it and I'll emphasize the word for you so you can call it out. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, the serving there is that of slavery. They are going to experience oppression at the hands of taskmasters. They will be property. Sarai treats her as property. Some translations do the word oppression. Some do the word affliction. But this is active hostility against Hagar. She wants her out of here. And, and it is, must be pretty intense. Because the next word that comes in this is that Hagar fled from her. Typically, when you see that word, fled, in the Old Testament narrative, somebody is running for their life. And so here, she actually thinks that if she stays in this particular place, that she will die, and therefore, she is forced to an unimaginable alternative. As a single, pregnant foreigner, she will have to return home through a wilderness without any protection, without anyone to look out for her, open to the attacks of any man that may come along, not having any provisions... It's almost certain death. She is on the end. And the truth is that everybody's hurt here. When you start mucking around with God's plan, especially, by the way, I don't mean to moralize this, but I'll just go ahead and say it. It's an observation. When you start messing around with God's plan, especially in areas of sexual ethics, there will be hell to pay. And I know you may think, men, that you may have escaped some of the consequences of those wild years that you lived in your teen years and in your 20s, but I'm telling you, it will come back to bite you. And everybody's messed up. Abram has no seed. It's gone. Sarai has no child. Gone. And Hagar's life is literally on the fritz. It is a total disaster. Way to go, Abram. Way to bless the nations. Get her pregnant and then let your wife send her out into the wilderness. Awesome. Can anyone here resonate with Hagar? Have any of you hurt at the hands that should have helped? Have you had to flee for emotional and physical well-being? Could have been a husband, a wife, a family member, a teacher, a coach, or a friend, a business partner. See, we can identify with this injustice. We all know it. And by the way, the Holy Spirit knows it. And that's why he's written the text the way he has. What you need to notice here is that this impotence to to fulfill God's plan has brought harm to the nations. One so consumed with getting blessing has forgotten about giving blessing. And by the way, it not only happens to us, but it happens through us. 
Are you not ever like Abram? So eager to experience God's blessing right now where you are that you're willing to trample over anybody to get it. We're so consumed with the getting of the blessing that we've forgotten about our call to give blessing to others. This, the knife, friends, cuts both ways. And so here we see how Sarai has absolutely caused harm to this foreigner, but there's a contrast. Because now, God shows up. Or at least His representative shows up. If the first half of the story is about Sarai's harm to the foreigner, the second half of the story is about Yahweh's heart for the foreigner. Notice it. Things start to turn around. You see here, right at verse 7, it begins with the angel of the Lord. Now, that's an interesting phrase because we haven't seen it yet. Some of you who grew up in Sunday school are confident that you know who this is and what this is. Despite your confidence, I want you to hold back on that for a moment because they didn't know. She didn't know. All it is is a messenger or the messenger of Yahweh. That would be a literal way to render this. There is some special representative from God himself. Clearly she thinks at first that it's human. But the end will reveal a bigger story. But this is Yahweh speaking. His emissary is here. One who is, interestingly, equal with him as the text will reveal, but different than him. That's a funny thing to find in the Hebrew Bible, but it's there. Notice what this special representative says. When you read through verses 7 through 14, You're going to get an overview of the way Yahweh intends for this need to be met. And three things happen. The angel of Yahweh finds, hears, and helps Hagar. The angel of Yahweh here finds, hears, and helps Hagar. Notice, he finds her, verse 7. It says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. In other ancient Near Eastern literature, where it seems like some divine presence shows up, it doesn't just show up. Normally, it's called down. But here, she doesn't call anything down. She doesn't work it up. This special representative from God goes out and finds her in the middle of a wilderness, by the way, clinging to a well, probably not knowing how far it's going to be to the next one. She is hanging on for dear life, and yet it is in that place that the angel of the Lord finds her. But he not only finds her, he also hears her. He listens to her. Look at verse 8. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Notice that. This is like what happens in the earlier narratives where, where God calls out to Adam and Eve, where are you? What have you done? He says to Cain. Here she says, where, where are you coming from? Where are you going? He, he engages her in her need. He lets her explain herself here. And so she answers, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. She recognized that she still had a social obligation to this woman, despite the harsh treatment, but she is escaping for her life. But he hears, he, he lets her speak. So he finds, he hears, and then he helps. And notice how he helps. And this will blow you away. Look at verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Pause. What in the world? What is so helpful about her stepping back into 
that nightmare of a situation that she had just escaped. This seems counterintuitive to God's plan for blessing. An absolute contradiction. But you need to remember, the theology of Genesis chapter 12, where would blessing for the nations be found? Through Abram. God will not abandon his plan. The only way that one will find ultimate blessing is through the means that he has prescribed, and in this case, it is Abram and his eventual seed. She will not find blessing and protection and rest apart from her connection with Abram. And the only way that she can be connected to Abram is to make things right with Sarai, whom she had inadvertently or advertently offended. She needed to go back and submit to her mistress and make things right. And as counterintuitive as that seems to us, God would not compromise on His plan. But He helps not only by sending her back to the source of blessing, but He helps by extending to her a promise for the future. Look at verses 10 through 12. This is where things get amazing. The angel of the Lord also said to her, it isn't just go back, submit to the the problems. He gives her hope as well. There's something good in this. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. What did I say that women in the ancient Near East valued above all else? Children. And what is it that this woman is going to be promised? Not a child, not just children. But she is the only woman in the Bible who will receive the same blessing that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would all receive. Who's receiving such a special blessing? A woman. A foreigner. A slave. God says, you go back and I will bless you among your wildest imagination. I will take care of you. This thing that has threatened you right now in your current plan, it's all going to go down a really bad way. But you go back. I have something great in store for you, something special. I will make some significance of your line. And not only that, he says, you will name him Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Remember last week I told you about the little translator's notes. So you see Ishmael, if you're using the ESV, you've got a number five there. You go down to the bottom, and this just giving you the literal rendering of the Hebrew. Ishmael is just the transliteration of the Hebrew words that are there. But what does it mean? It means God hears. Shema El. This angel wants her to know that for the rest of this boy's life, every time she calls his name, she, Hagar, will remember that God heard her cries of suffering. He says, God has heard you. This isn't just some random plan. He was listening. He knew everything that you were suffering, everything that you were going through. And I want you to know from time till death. Now, time now till you go to be in the presence of God, you will remember that God hears Ishmael. And he continues. He just keeps heaping on the blessing. He says, 
You call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction, to your oppression. But look at verse 12. This one confuses us because we think, no, there's no way this is a blessing. No, this is a blessing. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, the natural question here is like, well, I don't know that I would feel that good if God said that my kid was going to be a wild donkey of a man. I get that. But you need to understand that a wild donkey, at least in the Orient, was actually somewhat of a compliment because it was something that was tough and rugged and individualistic, something that could stand up against the harshest realities. It was the only animal known to be able to survive in the desert. Not the only animal, but I'm talking about like beast, not insect. It was rugged. It was individualistic. You know, here she is, absolutely dependent on Abram for everything and Sarai. But she's assured that she's going to have a boy who will never have to rely exclusively upon Abram's other sons when they come. It says that actually he's going to have to learn to fight. <laughs> He's going to be independent to the degree that his hand will be against everyone. Everyone's hand will be against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. He's he's going to establish his own line, his own name. He's going to be his own man. And history has borne this out. Most of what we think to be the Arab peoples today are indeed this abundant multitude who are independent and ready (laughs) at any point to take on anyone else around them. Now, for people in the American West, it's easy to start reading into this and saying like, oh, well, this must be where Arabs come from, which is where Muslims come from, and therefore this text is about when you do the wrong thing in God's plan that there's going to be judgment on the world. Friends, this is, number one, a blessing, and number two, there is no guarantee in this text that is talking about Ishmael being the father of all Muslims. Just because they claim him in their holy book doesn't mean that he is the direct descendant. I mean, if you think about the timeline here, we've got about 2,000 years at least between Ishmael and Islam. So don't read your, 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 your modern stuff into this text. We have to understand this text the way that the original readers would have understood it, and they knew nothing of Islam. Don't lose the point. The point is blessing. Blessing is coming. This boy will not need other people's resources. And this is where it all gets real. Because as soon as all this is revealed, we see Hagar's understanding of this. And look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. You notice what she's saying here? You look after the afflicted. When I thought I was going to die, when I thought that I had no earthly recourse, you intervened and you showed me that there was actually a way forward. And here's where the narrator finally reveals that this angel of the Lord figure that she was speaking to was Yahweh. Do you see it there in the text? It says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. 
She knows that it's not now just an emissary. This is a special representative of God, what later theologians would call a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of the Son of God Himself, that one who is equal to God, but different in person than Him. And so He reveals Himself to her saying, I hear you. I hear you. And she knows it too because she says, you are the God who sees, you are the God who hears, you are the God who perceives and knows what I'm going through. I read a report this week about some, ti- some scientists, this just came out a few months ago, scientists who have been able to explain by means of biology why kissing a child's boo-boo is effective. And it was the healing properties of a kiss. I, you can look it up. It's hilarious because these people are actually trying to scientifically explain why children do this. Now, this is just the classic problem of somebody who's a carpenter trying to fix everything with a hammer. The scientist here thinks that through biological research, he's going to be able to answer the question of why kids go and run to their parents and ask for their wounds to be kissed. You know what their answer is? There's healing properties in your saliva. There's a protein that... I'm like, that's gross. I don't, <laughs> I'm not slobbering on my kids' cuts. It's, it's really bad. Right question, wrong answer. Now, look, I know my limitations. I don't have a PhD in early childhood development. But I venture a guess on why it's so effective for a child to be, receive a kiss when they're wounded. Because when we suffer, we don't want to suffer alone. We want companionship. We want someone to enter into the experience. And that itself is healing. That is why this name is so significant. This is the only place in the Bible where someone gives a name to God and it sticks. She calls him El Roi, the the God who sees. And then translates it for you just in case you didn't get it. This is the God who sees me. This is the God who sees me when I hurt. This is the God that sees me when I've been cast out by those who themselves were supposed to be for my help and healing. Even if mankind messes this up, God still looks into your particular situation, wherever it is, or whatever it is, and knows and feels and remedies that. He finds you. He hears you. And he heals you. Has he not done that for us all? When you had gone off because of your own mistakes and circumstances in combination with that of injustices thrust upon you, go out and you've lived your own life, and yet the sovereign voice of God has come through his word, whether it be through someone ministering personally or someone ministering publicly, and you began to hear and recognize that, well, God is addressing me. And God speaks to you and He asks you, where have you been? Where are you going? That, that moment in our lives where we were confronted with our own rebellion and, the own in, and our own injustices that we ourselves had suffered and then considered where our life was headed. How did we ever start to think of this? It was because the Spirit Himself had approached us and made Himself known to us, exposed our need, and began to provide a remedy. And God Himself healed. And you know how He did it? He did it by pointing us back to the seed of Abram, one who would ultimately come and provide the blessing that only he himself could provide. 
Jesus Christ finally entering into the world 2,000 years ago to take on all your sin, all your shame, all your suffering, entering into the very experience and overcoming it. I think we forget that. He isn't just sympathetic. He is a sympathetic high priest. He is one who has actually made it right again. He took all the guilt, all the shame. He absorbed it into himself when he died on the cross. And when he rose again, he showed everyone who would ever believe in him that there would be full and final victory over every hurt and pain experienced in this life in the life to come. You know what's interesting here is that Hagar herself did not in this very moment receive the full expression of the promise. She still had to go back in faith to Abram. And it was only years later that she would begin to see this thing work itself out. And I would say to you today, you may have entered into God's promise. You may have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And no, you don't see the full expression of the promise yet. And yes, you still hurt. But the resurrection proves that a day of victory over everything leading up to death will ultimately come. And so we find hope in a God who hears The God who hears you in your suffering, in your affliction, in your oppression. In fact, it was so memorable that the Old Testament text wouldn't let anyone forget it. It says that he, presumably the angel, names that well, Bir Lahai Roy. Notice it. We're reminded that God hears our hurting through the name Ishmael. We're reminded that God hears our hurting through the name that Hagar prescribes to God. And then we're reminded that God hears our hurting in the well itself. Three different times in this narrative text, we're reminded of the exact same truth. Though the hands that should help you may hurt you, God himself still heals. That is an amazing truth. Because I assure you, friends, People will let you down. The people you trust, the people you love, the people that you look to for hope and healing and comfort, they will let you down. And you must learn, like Hagar, that your ultimate hope and your ultimate healing doesn't come from any man or any woman or any other human being for that matter. It comes from Yahweh Himself. That is the point of this text. And I want you to know something that you see it here in verses 15 and 16. Yahweh doesn't just promise, but he follows through. Look at verse 15. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Do you see what's happening here? God fulfills the promise. He carries through. She follows through. He follows through. And what's interesting is that Abram's name is mentioned four times in these two verses. Why? Because that's where blessing comes from. Here she returns to be a blessing to Abram, letting him have his son. And notice whose name isn't mentioned? Sarai. There's no mention of her and her belligerence. But Hagar now will receive this child of promise 
And God himself would fulfill his word. And when you're reading the narrative, a natural question arises at this point. So is this the child of promise? You don't know. Well, you know, but the original reader doesn't know because you're thinking like, oh, yay, Abram, seed, awesome. Future stories will reveal the significance of Ishmael and whether or not he is that promise. But that's not the point of the text today. Let's stick to where we are. What is God telling all who have hurt or will hurt today? He hears you. He sees you. He knows. And He heals. Effectively, the sermon's over. That's all you need to know. But in a couple ways, the sermon's just beginning. Don't worry, my part is over. But yours is just beginning. And I say this for two groups of people. The first is that of the hurting. I, I can't, I'm going to do some counseling from up front. I cannot personally enter into every one of your situations, but the point of of the scriptures are that Jesus knows he is a sympathetic high priest. He is one that has suffered more than you could ever imagine. And he promises healing through his person and work. You have got to learn, you've got to learn to find the healing for your hurting in the resource that God himself has provided in his son. There will be expressions of it in this life. But the full weight of all that's promised to you is not going to happen until after death or Jesus returns. He hears. He finds. But he also heals. You should be comforted by that today. You you need to return to Christ for healing. That's why in the prayer, by the way, when I'm praying pastorally, I'm trying to teach you how to pray. And one of the things that I've been praying for this week for you, is that when we suffer as Faith Bible Church, that we do not turn to the same measly mess that the world does. Listen, if your release is a bottle of wine and binge-watching Netflix, you've got a problem. No, I'm serious. There are better ways to cope with the pains of this life than substances and stuff. And so many of us, as supposed Christ followers who have found eternal hope in the resurrection of Jesus, have no better strategy for dealing with our trouble than our unsaved neighbor. And I I hate to take a message on comfort and turn it into a chastisement. I'm speaking to myself, but I'm so frustrated because the truth is... Christians for hundreds of years have found hope in the most horrible situations by meditating on what Christ has promised them. And now we get into it in the 21st century and we're like, what's our problem? There is healing in Christ. Give them a shot. Turn the stinking TV off and actually try to read your Bible and pray and just see what happens. You probably haven't even tried it. Practically, I mentioned journaling last week. Here, shut the laptop down, turn off the stinking Facebook account, and actually write down how you're feeling before God. 
and see if the Spirit himself will bring about the promises of God to help you in your hurting. So I, I say the sermon is just beginning for those of you who are hurting. But it's, it's just beginning for another group of us. Notice I said us. And that's what I would call the hardened. There's a group in here, you know who you are, who um, you're more task-oriented than people-oriented. Uh, and for you, someone else suffering is just a problem that you would stare at your, your, your watch at. You know what? We're supposed to not only get blessing, but give blessing. And that means that we ourselves, if we're going to be godly, if you want to be like God, you will treat the hurting around you in similar ways. And you know what that involves? It involves you finding them, asking them how they are and then giving them hope in the gospel. That means you may have to leave some things unchecked from your to-do list this week. The most dangerous thing, not the most dangerous thing, but one of the more dangerous things that I've noticed in in recent days are people's tendencies to start describing themselves in non-biblical terms. And they do this. They say, well, I took a Myers-Briggs test, and I know that I'm an executive, and therefore that means that I don't have to be nice to anybody. It's idiotic. You have let some psychological profile define you when Scripture itself should define you. And yes, God is sovereign and powerful, and he knows how to get things done. But listen, God stops and hears the hurting. Whether it be my leadership as a pastor or your leadership in your home, some of you need to actually represent the compassionate God of the Bible by stopping finding, listening, and giving biblical hope to those who need it. And that's why I pray for our church, that we would be a place marked by compassion. See, the truth is, that the more we go deep, I keep hearing that, and I love it. People say, oh, I love that we go deep in the Bible here, and we're learning a lot about theology. Listen, that is so good. We need a good, we need a good foundation. But as I told a brother earlier, you can't live on a foundation. We need a house. And on top of that, we must build Christ-like compassion for those around us. So we're not just learning truth around here. We need to be living it out. And that may mean that we don't have as much stuff on the schedule. It may mean that we actually just spend more time having people over in our homes. And you know what? You may not come with some all-star Bible passages and just fix all their problems, but they were heard. And that is the type of ministry that needs to prevail in this place if we will be a reflection of God's glory. This is a glorious attribute of God, one that we ourselves must also reflect. So help us, God. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who cares for the afflicted. We take comfort in that. And we need to convey that to others. Help us. Help us to do that. To find hope in the gospel and to share hope through the gospel. Lord, it is through your spirit alone that we'll be able to do this. Or for those who are hurting today that don't know you, pray that they would speak to one of us even when the service is over. And they, they would learn the healing and the hope that comes from Jesus himself. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.